You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Just a few things before we get in today's episode. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, We love getting the word out and trying to get new listeners. This week, we're excited. We briefly cracked the top 20 business podcasts on iTunes and also the top five investing podcasts on iTunes. And so we're we're happy that the podcast is starting to get around and and help people with investing and strategies and, and those sort of things. Also, if you'd like to, we'd appreciate it if you subscribe to our emails. We're going to start sending out emails and, and give some a millionaire analysis of some of the people we've interviewed. We've emailed over you know, 40, 50 millionaires now, uh, interviews completed, and so we're starting to analyze some of the data we've collected from that and trying to, to get some valuable information. So thanks again for listening, and we definitely appreciate it. So on today's podcast, we interview Mr. Schertz, and his inter- and his net worth is at $1.6 million, and he and his wife are 36 years old. His wife's already retired, and he's looking to retire in the next year or so, depending on how the market is and depending on how his uh, situation at work is. He's been in commercial banking for over 15 years, been with the same company, and, and one thing that he really wanted to hit home on is, you know, you really don't have to make a lot of money to really grow your asset base when you're young. He started out making in the 50s, the 60s, and 70s. He said in his first 10 years, his average pay was about $78,000. And his wife was a was a veterinarian, and, and her pay was also around that. But she also had all sorts of student loans to pay back. His biggest mistakes were buying a house. He was not one of the fortunate ones that's, that was able to capitalize on some of the real estate purchases that he made and actually lost some money on some of the homes that he bought and sold. One thing that's really interesting that we get into in the interview is some restricted stock, kind of how that works, what that means for your tax situation, and how how to go about maybe negotiating that or talking about or expecting that if you are in a job that, that might offer that. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview with Shirts. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we've got Shirts. Shirts, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to? Sure. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me and really appreciate what you're doing with the show. So my wife and I are 36 and we currently live in both 36 and we currently live in Texas and our net worth is just over $1.6 million. So, and, and we've done that and you guys talk about asset allocation a lot and we've really done that almost entirely with invested assets. It's 1.4 million in you know, retirement accounts, a regular brokerage account, and the remainders in home equity. So it's a pretty basic investment strategy. And then, you know, I'm planning on, I've worked for 15 years for the same company, and I work in commercial banking, and planning on or thinking about declaring early retirement slash hobby entrepreneurship next year. Wow. So dive into that portfolio a little bit. What is what is the breakdown of all of all your assets there? Yeah, so I really break it down in two ways. One is by account type and then by allocation. I've been really fortunate that I've had good company matches and access to retirement plans since the beginning. So I've been able to save up just over $1.1 in all the various retirement vehicles. 
and that split between mainly in a four in my 401k, my wife's uh, rollover IRA from when she was working, a couple of Roth IRAs, and then really fortunate a couple years ago, I got access to a deferred comp plan, and that's almost two hundred thousand of it. So we've really been able to take advantage of deferring those income taxes and getting some nice growth over the last four or five years. And how do you invest that? Is that in bonds or stocks and equities or or a combination? Yeah, it it's almost entirely in equities. I've I've got a little bit of bond allocation in um, a Vanguard active fund that I bought years ago and really don't want to get rid of it because it's closed to new investors and kind of a pain to get back. But as of right now, we're 65% in passive index funds, 9% in the Vanguard active fund, almost 9% in REITs, and then I've got 16% in individual stock holdings. Now, I used to really like individual stocks, do a lot of research, but it's just with the job, I've been working a lot more and I've had less desire to put a bunch of effort into individual stock investing. And quite frankly, I've I was usually pretty good at it, and then I trailed the market pretty badly next year and almost said, uncle, and it's time to index. So that's still, I mean, at least for those that we've interviewed on this show, 16% proportionately is still a large amount. How come you keep that, and and, and maybe are you looking to, to get out of that, I guess? Yeah, so, so right now I'm not really looking to get out of it. The, the majority of it is in four stocks, and it, it's in a regular taxable account. So I'd have to realize some gains in it, and I want to put off doing that as long as possible. And, and over 5% of that's in Costco, which is a company that I kind of like and enjoy shopping at, and I'm not too worried about that investment. So let me just see. you got Costco, Cracker Barrel, Coach are just a few of the single stocks. So you say a statement in the notes that you sent us before the show, you say you have an overwhelming need to always tinker with something in your portfolio. <laughs> and unfortunately, my returns show this. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, I've really, en- I've enjoyed investing in individual stocks, but, you know, sometimes if you, when you buy something and you get some nice gains in it, you you know, you can let the tail wag the dog and say, I really don't want to get out of that because of the because of the gain in it. And then you turn up getting then you turn around and get hit because the stock trails the market. You know, when holding that. Um, so one of the one of the random investment strategies that I like is look for companies where people just line up to spend money there. And the first time I saw all these people lined up at Disney and willing to wait for 30 minutes or an hour and go through that chaos to spend $110 go in their theme park, I said, this is really investable. And that was probably 2012, and the company had just a great run. But then I had a, had a realized gain in it, didn't sell it, and it's been a real lagging stock over the past two years. And had that money just been in, it, in an index fund, I would have picked up the gain in Netflix that offsets the loss that Disney was having from the whole change in how people watch television. Gotcha. I, I want to ask you a little bit about REITs. Um, you recommend REITs, right? And, and so maybe talk about why, why you feel so strongly about those. I, I do. I, I really, I like REITs as an investment class. And I know you guys are, you guys are pretty like real estate as well. And looking at some of the private syndications, but I really like REITs or I think REITs get a bad rap when they're back tested because they're both a stock and they're 
really a bond because they have underlying property that's paying out cash flow. You get a monthly return. The, the challenge with a public REIT versus a private investment is your principal gets marked to market every single day, every single hour. So as interest rates move, you have to watch the change in value. And unfortunately, I start probably started buying REITs a little bit too early and was reallocating into them last year. But if I if I think we're going to have some inflation and I think you know, I'm looking at early retirement, do I want some cash flow? If I'm looking at a REIT that has relatively low leverage and is buying a bunch of properties that have an underlying 6 to 8% cap rate, that's going to provide a steady and inflation-protected return long-term. I just hate watching the principal change every single day. And, and it's they're really tough to backtest because they're relatively – you don't have a lot of REITs that you have data on. Your REIT index funds go back until early 2000s, and you know they really got hammered in a real estate-led recession. So they look just as bad, if not worse, than stocks because it was real estate that drove the last recession. Gotcha. What's been your uh, your historical ROI on, on, on your investing? Um, so I it, I was typically matching the S and P five hundred or beating it by one or two percent up up until two thousand and into two thousand sixteen, and then I then I on the entire portfolio I trailed it by eight or nine percent last year. I think the S and P was up twenty one percent, and I was only up I was only up twelve. And that that really hurt, and that drove me to stop tinkering and do more indexing. And part of that too was getting into REITs a little bit earlier and being in a, a couple of the wrong individual stock names. So I want to ask about your your corporate job. You've been in the same place for fifteen years, and and for millennials, I think we're seeing that's becoming rare and rare. You know, my dad worked for two or three companies his whole career. And so why have you chosen to stay in your job and how has that been beneficial in, in you, you know, growing your net worth and growing your, your financial stability? Yeah, I, I think I really am an outlier with staying with the same company for that long. Um, you know, part of it was probably circumstance. So I, I work in banking. I got accepted into a training program right out of college in 2003. And I, I work in commercial banking, so it's a job that takes – a good three to five years to learn it, get proficient in it, and then you're very marketable to the outside world. Well, go from 2003, five years later, it was 2008, and bankers were losing their job and not getting hired. So at that point where most people would usually start changing, that opportunity really wasn't there for me. So part of it was by default, and the other part, another part of it was I kind of like where I work, who I work with, and we were a nice growing company with some opportunities. But, but it's interesting, in the last four years, I've moved into a leadership role, and what you find out in, in a lot of these large companies is there are lots of qualified people out there who are pretty smart, they work hard, they know how to do the job, but there's still a limited number of promotional opportunities. And you part of what gets you that promotional opportunity is trust, and how long you've been there and how long people have interacted with you builds that trust. I'd say it's really benefited me more in the last five years than any other time. So you shared with us kind of your your income training, the income ladder, and, and your journey to get to where you are with that. Do you want to just discuss that a little bit and kind of what's been unique about your situation over the years? Yeah, I'll be happy to. So, 
you know, in commercial banking in general, you, you don't make a whole lot of money for the first five years. And it's more of an investment that the company is making because you have to both learn the job and you have to be able to go out, meet with clients and be competent and have people like you to do business. So when I look back on my income, the first really the first six and a half years were underwhelming. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism out there in the financial independence community that says everybody who does this has high salaries. But when I look at it in my first, you know, my first seven years, I averaged, I averaged $65,000 a year. And in my first 10, I still averaged under 85,000. So, and, and my wife was in, was in veterinary school for three of those years. So she was actually accruing student loan debt. And then that's a pretty underwhelming career when it comes to income relative to the amount of time you have to be in school. So in the first 10 years, we really didn't make a, we didn't make a large sum of money, but we were still able to save just over $700,000. What has your savings rate been over these last 10, 12 years? Yeah, I try not to focus too much on saving on the savings rate, but it's, I look at it more as what, how much money do we need to enjoy our life? And, you know, what we found is when, when she was in school, I was working. Then shortly after she got out, you know, it was really two to $3,000 a month plus whatever it costs for housing where we lived. And after that, we really just saved the difference. So the savings rate probably crept up and it's stayed over 50% you know, ever since we became a two-income household. You know, last time I tried to calculate it, I think I was at 60%. And the way that math comes out is I lost 20% to taxes, spent 20%, and was saving the remaining 60. I see. What have been some of the mistakes you've made along the way? Um, Housing. So a lot of people who quote their net worth have actually made money on owning homes. I've owned three homes. We've owned three homes and well, we've owned four houses, including the one that we're in. And we made a little bit of money on our first house then immediately lost it in our second two. So that net worth number I was quoting includes losing $30,000 all in and housing. But we were 25. We thought two of us are going to work. We need to live the American dream and buy a big house. So we bought a five bedroom house in suburban Atlanta and did not need that much space. And we're immediately rewarded with its value being flacked by thirty hmm. percent. I want to go back to the career to the career piece uh, for a sec. What advice do you give to to somebody to grow their income, whether it's you know working in financial services or in another field? Do you do you advise to stick with the primary job, or what about you? Hear a lot about side hustling now and doing things on the side. What are your viewpoints on that? You know. I think everyone has to decide what's right for them. So in a professional setting, you know, I, I tell a lot of the folks I talk to and that I mentor that there's really that there's really three things that are very valuable to companies, a unique and marketable skill set, the ability to lead and inspire people, and the ability to go sell and bring in revenue for your company. And you find the people that really excel in their primary career from an income standpoint have some combination of those three. I mean, you you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, they mastered all three of those. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. So so for me personally, I really haven't been able to pursue a side hustle, both from some restrictions that my employer has and 
just generally focusing on the income opportunity. Sure. How do you expect to change your portfolio allocation in the future, if, if so at all? You know, in, in looking at it, I think, you know, when I leave full-time work, I definitely want to look at both some private investments and look at and look at doing some direct real estate investing. The, you know, one of the things in my job, I've looked at small businesses for 15 for 15 plus years, and I've seen a number of good opportunities that may not be a candidate for bank debt, but I'd be interested as an equity investor. And I, I hope those opportunities are still out there once I'm able to do that. What mistakes have you made along the way in, in your financial journey? Yeah, well, probably the, the first would be the house. Then I think just tinkering around tinkering around too much in too much in my individual portfolio you know really I, I got obsessed early on with dividend investing I thought this was great a company's going to return cash to you every single month it sounds great and two different times I've owned these dividend aristocrats where the world just changed against them and really took a bath on that investing one got hit by Amazon and the other was in financial services going into 2008 I want to do some uh, some rapid fire questions with you if you're good with that so first of all what's the most uh, money you've ever spent on a pair of jeans oh that that's pretty funny uh, you know <laughs> maybe maybe thirty dollars before I before I figured out that there was a Costco nearby that sold clothes <laughs> and and on and on clothing, I probably I spend a lot more on professional clothing, so it's the one of the least interesting things to buy for casual attire. Okay, what about shoes? Uh, unfortunately, three hundred plus dollars for Allen Edmonds. All right, there you I've go. Got, but it, I've got a fairly unique foot, and those things are incredibly comfortable to wear every day. We're both Allen Edmonds fans. <laughs> At least you can go get them resold, right? They are outstanding shoes. Uh, most expensive car that you've purchased? So this would probably go under financial mistake. I paid cash for a for a truck in 2007 that I still drive today, right before gas went to 350 a gallon. Okay. Uh, what items to you are worth spending money on, or spending uh, more me, money on? Yeah, travel. Travel is one. Yeah, definitely do a lot of traveling. Enjoy going to vacations that involve involve nice water and a beach somewhere. We, we do some credit card rewards, but I'll absolutely pay for travel. And really, the other is in the last five years is paying for housing to live close to the office. Okay, what's not worth spending the money on? Sometime in the last five or six years, eating out is not worth spending the money on. Really, don't enjoy that. Don't enjoy cars, cars or anything fancy about vehicles. Yeah, those are the two big ones. Okay. At what age do you expect to uh, retire? Or if you had to predict now when you retire, when would that be? Well, I hope it will be in February of 2019. And then, but it depends on if it's if hobby entrepreneurship counts because I can't see myself just sitting still and doing nothing. And what about GPA, high school and college GPA? Oh, so there's an awesome car that's driving around Dallas that's a picture of a Ferrari that just says 2.7 GPA, and I smile <laughs> and say, that's me. I've seen so a I was picture a, of that. <laughs> I was a 2 point, I think I was a 2.8 in 
high school, I got rejected to the, I got rejected from the backup school for the state, and I was a three five in college. Wow! So, where have been some of the favorite places you've traveled to? Um, so, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Hawaii. Just the it still blows my mind every time I go that you can get on an airplane, be in this faraway land, and you walk out and realize, hey, I'm still in the United States. So I'm just a big fan of Hawaii. I've been to all the islands, and we kick around the idea of moving there post-retirement. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit in, in terms of post-retirement plans. Do you have a target number that you're trying to get to? You said February of 2019. Is that kind of on pace with, with a number or with a certain amount of cash flow that you'll be able to live on? Yeah, it, it's probably more in line with the job relative to the number. So you know, I work in banking and you're, and you get some portion of your compensation and salary, some in, some in bonus and some in restricted stock. So I would t- 1.6 is about where I want to be. Anything else we can accrue is a nice cushion, cushion to that number, help for healthcare expense. But then there's also some deferred comp payouts that hit in the first quarter of 2019. And I've worked a long time to earn those and would like to collect them. Was this 1.6 number something that you kind of had in your mind coming out of college, or has it kind of been the last five or, or so years that you've kind of developed that that number in your head? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, in college, I got a finance degree, and you have a financial calculator. And I always kind of looked at being a millionaire by 40 as the goal, and really no rhyme or reason for that. And then it probably was five years ago where we really looked at the math, looked at what we were spending and said, you know, we may really have the freedom to go do something else. And, you know, unfortunately, my wife has actually been retired for almost four years now. Oh, wow. So one thing that's kind of unique about about your situation is is the restricted stock. You kind of just want to maybe educate our listeners kind of how that works, maybe some of the younger uh, listeners on on what that actually entails going forward, if they might encounter it in their career or not. Sure, I, I would love to help. So th- this is one of those one of those valuable pieces of staying with the same company for a long time and getting elevated into leadership roles. Well, in financial services, and especially post two thousand eight, there, there's both direct compensation and there's compensation that the company wants the ability to claw back from you if you do anything wrong or just incent you to stay. So they called in the media your golden handcuffs but you know I'll get I'll get a base salary I'll get a bonus but then they'll also every year they'll issue me 42% of my salary in restricted stock but I can't actually get that for 4 years so at any given time I can pull up I can pull up a website and it has what I call pretend math in it that tells me how much money is supposedly mine but it's not really mine until I work until the end of that 48 month period and fortunately or unfortunately, what it does is it causes a lot of people to stay at the company. It's a great retention tool, but sometimes there are people that you wish would go ahead and retire and leave, and they're still around. There's actually a great presentation out there where Bill Ackman did a presentation on ADP, and he was really critical of this strategy and how they were using it. So it has good and bad components to it, but restricted stock essentially grants you future compensation that's tied to the stock price, whereas options, which are another form of stock compensation, you only get if the value of the stock goes up. And, and what are your options to kind of either take that 
in cash or in kind of what are the tax implications of all that? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I work for a much larger company, so it's pretty methodical. When they come due, I have an option to either write a check for the cat, write a check for the potent for the tax withholdings, and they're withheld at the bonus rate, which was twenty five percent previously, and now it's twenty two percent. And since they come due in the beginning of the year, that withholding happens, and I also own FICA, owe FICA and Medicare on it. So I get roughly seventy percent of the stock that's of the shares and dollar amount that is mine, I get that netted to me. So if I was due a thousand shares, they would net me 700. And then I can transfer those over to my account at Fidelity and sell it. Is that something that you have the option to negotiate or is that kind of just kind of given to you when you, when you took the, the position you're in now? Yeah, it's, there's a little bit of negotiation in it, but it's really a performance award that's given every year. So the company has some parameters on what calculates your award, and then you're awarded it, and there's a total pool that the company has to award out of. So there are a number of factors based on both how you did and then what's the total pool to be issued. Good stuff. You mentioned earlier that there were several companies in, in your banking career that you've come across that, that maybe didn't qualify for you know debt financing, but you as an individual – would maybe like to see some of those opportunities on the equity side. What what maybe are some of the industries that you've come across, and maybe some of the this, you know, the experience that you've had in the banking world that you could kind of you know lend to our listeners about. Hey, if this is a, a small business that somebody wants to get into or start, what are some of the ones that you've seen that have been super profitable and that maybe you know we don't hear about every day? Yeah. So the. I think it really depends on where you're at in life and how hard you want to work because there are a number of different businesses where you can make an incredible amount of money if you're able if you're willing to just work harder than everybody else and a lot of those are just the typical franchise models. So I've seen some incredible operators at a young age do very well in in you know just work intensive businesses like franchise fast food. I mean it's incredible how much a younger person with hustle and if he can find a backer with a little bit of capital can do running a Little Caesars franchise, a Domino's franchise, running one of the fried chicken restaurants. I mean, it's it's incredible the amount of money that's in pizza and fried chicken, especially if you go and set it <laughs> up. And, and especially if you're willing to go and set it up in front of a Walmart and a outside of a big city. So that that's been pretty attractive. And then I've seen some people that have done incredibly well on rural mini storage facilities. You know, if you can go outside a big city, figure out where the zoning is more lenient, and then with technology today, and you just have a cost advantage over these big operators that have all the zoning rules in a big city. Because people love their stuff, and they will drive 40 miles to put their stuff in a place at half the price. Yep, yep, that's true. Do you remember what age you, you became a millionaire? Um, I do. We hit it at, we actually hit it at 34. And did you do anything to celebrate? <laughs> we always did life thought, just we, keep going. We always thought we would. And then just life just kept going. And, and has the money, you know, now that you're approaching 2 million, has it increased your happiness levels or at what point did you kind of say, Hey, it's enough, or maybe it's not enough. You know, when, when did you start to become more content? 
there was really one point where it hit me and I became more content. And it's not and it wasn't the total net worth number, but forever we had always thrown all our money in tax deferred accounts, aggressively paid down student loan debt. We probably paid off too much in mortgage debt, especially in hindsight. And the biggest thing that made the difference was when we sold a house, we were moving, and it was that moment where we had $100,000 just saved in a regular brokerage account. There was something relieving about the financial flexibility that provided us. So I would say that was a bigger milestone to us to just have $100,000 outside of retirement accounts. That felt different. And did you feel like you became more confident once you had that financial independence? Did you feel like that affected your confidence level? It, it really has, especially at work. You know, it, it's a lot easier to go in and, you know, provide your opinion, provide your feedback when you're really not scared or in fear of being fired from your job anymore. And I'm not talking go in and be a jerk or I'm not trying to like go in and play Peter Gibbons every day where you just clean a fish on your desk. I'm just <laughs> saying you're you know, you still need to be respect respectful, but being willing to give to give your opinion and not caring about the implications about getting to the next level inside a company. That's been really freeing. And could you have done that before you became financial successful, or do you wish you would have? Has it helped your career progress? You know, I think it's really helped a lot of the relationships with people that I've had from that I have at work and people that look up to me for advice for advice and for guidance because I guess now they're pretty confident that they'll get a direct and honest answer even if they don't like it. But mm -hmm. you know, in hindsight, it was I wish I had felt that freeing that freeing feeling earlier because now knowing what I know, I would have always been pretty employable, even if my employer had said they didn't like me anymore. So what advice do you give to, to someone who's trying to get to where you are, whether that's financially independent or to have a successful career? You know, obviously you've been successful at both. What advice do you give? Yeah, the, the biggest advice, and a lot of other people say it, is just start early. Start early and save something. I mean, we... We, we put money away, put money away, and you know it was really tough to stick with it when we were look when we were sitting there in early 2009 and looking at all these accounts and saying, "Wow, these things are worth less than our total contributions," and we really didn't have a whole lot of money to put in it. It's just, you know, stick with it, trust the process, and don't make any radical moves. I mean, the people that I feel really bad for the people who get so scared by all the media telling you that the market's going to zero that they pull all their money out and miss all the good days. I mean, that can really wreck someone's financial future if they're not willing to take risk and get a market return and they just want to hold all their money in cash out of fear. Yeah, I read a, an article the other day and it was about a, a millennial who had who had pulled out sixty or seventy thousand dollars of of cash, which was a lot for as a percentage of what his net worth was, because he was sure that the market was going to tank. And then you know, two thousand seventeen, of course, had a super strong year, and and he is just he's just kicking himself. Yeah, I mean, it's just stick stick with it, trust it. I mean, we've we had fifteen, sixteen months with no market volatility, and then we're back to having. We're back to having breaking news hitting one, everyone's iPhone that says the market fell 800 points in one day. It's just, you know, stick with it and then 
one older rich person once told me when a when a bear shows up just throw money at it till it goes away so if you do have any cash on the sidelines just put it to work <laughs> i like that so did your family and friends know how uh, financial successful you are or is that kind of something you keep on you keep private yeah that's something that i keep pretty private i would say i have a few coworkers who are pretty who are sharp enough to sharp enough to realize that I'm driving a 12 year old vehicle and have an idea that at this level I make pretty good money and I don't really <clears throat> have any expensive, expensive habits. I mean, I'll occasionally make a cheap uh, joke about being cheap on something, but you know, <laughs> I would say it's probably more so people at more so people professionally will think it, you know, I'm pretty convinced my family is still convinced that my salary looks like a bank manager that's running the branch down the street. Hmm. So 12 year old car, you know, that's totally a millionaire next door. It is minus the minus the buying it new and driving a gas guzzler. I think all the people over at Mr. Money Mustache will tar and feather me for driving a gas guzzler 200,000 miles. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Shirts with the net worth of $1.6 Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Shirt. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.